Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. I hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is 5.30 on the 21st, 25th, 21st of September. Three days left to be not 40. <laughs> so I hope you're doing well. We're going to have a random grab bag chat this afternoon about some feedback that I have gotten, uh, both in terms of emails on the board and in a group that uh, I chat with uh, in uh, an email forum from time to time, and the general topic I'd like to start off with is a couple of podcasts ago, I had a, um, I guess for want of a better phrase, a Yelly podcast, and that podcast was the one where I was talking about the humiliation of children, and of course I felt quite passionate about that particular topic, and I was uh, quite uh, incensed, I guess you could say, and I had to somebody write to me, a gentleman write to me, and he said that he found this podcast that I did a few days ago on uh, humiliation 422, I think it might be. He said that he found it offensive. Which, of course, I found offensive. No, I'm kidding. And I found this rather curious. Now, I've had this comment a number of times from people who uh, have listened to podcasts, and they're, of course, happy with the ones where I'm uh, you know, smiling uh, away and and uh, are full of full of glee, and they don't have any problem with those. And I think they don't mind the ones where I'm talking with people in uh, in the chat shows on Sundays. They don't mind the ones where I'm reading articles. They don't mind those, but they do not very much seem to like the ones where I am, uh, where I get angry. And anger, of course, fully understand it's an uncomfortable emotion. It makes people uh, jumpy and nervous, right? Because uh, to me, uh, it's no accident that if and when you get to the podcast on humiliation, that it may be unsettling to you uh, to hear me being angry uh, to, that, to that degree. So, of course, uh, this gentleman which is not uncommon, and I fully sort of sympathize and understand this, and you know, he may be completely right. I don't, I don't believe that he is, but, but let's, let's take a gander and let's see. He said, uh, to me, sort of three things that, that were important. And the reason that, that it's important, I think, well, the reason that I think it's important to talk about this is that I am certainly suggesting uh, to you that reason and emotion should be united in your soul, and, you know, there's a lot in the world to get angry about. I mean, I don't think that I am uh, any kind of uh, uh, tense, angry, ranting fellow, and to me, though, the... Well, we'll, we'll get into that. So, as, if you take this advice, or if you find this advice to be useful, then you are going to uh, be, uh, be angry, because there's a lot of corruption and bad things uh, in the world... And I think that I would like to invite you to become angry uh, about these bad things in the world, and with uh, and not not abusive, not uh, you know I I wasn't 
uh, yelling at anyone. I was uh, upset about, angry about uh, people who uh, corrupt and abuse and humiliate and demean and destroy uh, sort of innocent children. And so I wanted to... uh, Right, just letting some traffic go past here. Always concentrating on the driving. But um, I wanted to uh, uh, sort of go over these three points. The first point he said was that uh, I, was, uh, I, I, was, I was so angry that I must have a problem with, with anger. I must be um, uh, chronically or dyspeptically or cholerically angry, angry. And I should really look into that and introspect what it was that was making me so angry. With, with the idea, of course, that, that, that anger is, uh, always arises from uh, a personal rage uh, based on a thwarted whatevers, uh, and that it is always destructive. Now, the second thing he told me was that he was offended by my uh, level or degree of anger that he was offended by my level or degree of anger. Now, that's quite interesting, of course, and not to say that, uh, you know, maybe he was right that I was offensive. I'm not sure that I I believe that. But what I try to do in those situations, and, and this is something that may be of use to you, is to sort of think about the two poles that are being talked about. Because I get this, you know, that my language is violent and I'm over-aggressive and I'm angry and I'm, uh, I don't know, bitter or, or that I'm destructive or, or that um, I'm, I'm working out my own history in these podcasts and it's abusive. And I get this from time to time. Uh, it's not, uh, not an uncommon uh, comment on what it is that I'm doing. And so I just, the way that I sort of try and, and, and work it out in my own mind, which is not to say that uh, uh, these these comments may not be be valid. I mean, I, I always is the case that I could be missing something. But I'm talking about a, a universal phenomenon of destroying the souls of children, and a universal phenomenon, a near near universal phenomenon. There are, are there are us, we happy band. A universal, near universal phenomenon. I just say universal. Save myself, myself, from, save myself some syllables and. Uh, it won't make the <laughs> it won't make the podcast any shorter, but it might um, allow me to cram some more uh, filler in. But we have uh, the universal um, uh, corrupt and I would say patently evil uh, methodology by which children's souls are destroyed, their pleasure in life are destroyed, and the seeds of future uh, abuse of children are sown. And it's the root of war and governments and poverty and murder and rape and all of these sorts of things, right? So you have, uh, if I'm right, if I'm right, we have uh, perhaps uh, the greatest source of the greatest evil in the world. That's sort of on the one side. If, if I'm right, it could be, it could not be, but let's just say, let's just say at least that that's the proposition that is going forward, that, that what I'm talking about is the greatest source of the greatest evil, the abuse of children and so on, you understand. So that's on, on the one side of the equation. Now, what's on the other side of the equation is um, one guy 
uh, yelling uh, harmlessly. Obviously, nobody gets hurt uh, by me losing my temper in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's no... I'm not yelling at anyone. I'm in a car. I'm not even disturbing my neighbors. I'm not frightening any children in the vicinity. Uh, I guess I'm uh, only hurting my voice. Which, you know, seems to, as you can tell from the last 12 million podcasts, seems to have a certain amount of capacity uh, to recover. So, on the one hand, we have the greatest sort of the greatest evil responsible for a murder, genocide, all of the things that you could imagine. And on the other side, we have uh, a guy uh, yelling uh, in a car about this greatest source of the greatest evil. And not yelling at anyone, and uh, not uh, hurting anybody, and so on. And, of course, uh, somebody who says that the unity of reason and passion is the essence of morality. Accept it or don't accept it, that certainly is my philosophy. And so what I'm doing, uh, it would seem to me, is, is perfectly consistent with what I believe. And what I believe is not just sort of made up, but I think there's some, some decent proof for it, in general, in that bad people don't seem to have any particular problem getting passionate about things and about getting emotional about things. I think it's more false self-manipulative emotion and so on. So you have these two things. You've got the greatest source of the greatest evil, the abuse of children, and you have a guy doing no harm, but raising his voice in a car. Now, what does this gentleman, and it's not just this gentleman, and I'm not trying to pick on him, it's just, you know, it's a general comment that I get uh, fairly regularly. What is it that this gentleman is offended by? Is he offended by the mass torture of billions of children around the world? Is that what he finds offensive and unacceptable? Or, in his sort of scale of things to get upset about, is he more upset by a guy ranting in a car who's doing no harm to anybody? Not, not, not misrepresenting the theory, uh, acting out uh, exactly uh, doing what uh, I do what I believe to be and, and argue for uh, is virtuous. So I'm acting consistently, I'm acting in accordance with my values. To me, the greatest source of the greatest evil is something to get passionate about, and that passion in that instance, sometimes for me it takes the form of humor, uh, a passion in that instance took the form of, of great anger. So this is an important thing to understand about your temper and about how people are going to jump on your temper. And... This is uh, the, the way that you try and resolve this in your own mind. Of course, it's always worth listening to people who have criticisms, and it's always worth trying to understand where they're coming from, because they might have perfectly valid criticisms. I may be uh, ranting and, and crazy and, and unhinged and destructive in my anger and so on. I think that would show up in my life in general, like my career or my marriage or whatever. So, you know, I don't think that's the case. And, of course, Christina thinks that I'm <laughs> the most gentle soul in the universe, and I think that that's true. But uh, to me, uh, the, uh, the mental and physical attack upon helpless and, defendant, uh, de and defenseless children 
is something that is worthy of some complaint, uh, some uh, some anger. Because, of course, if you can't get angry about uh, a, a murderous assault on the minds of soul and souls of billions of uh, children, then uh, you, you can't get angry at anything, right? I mean, if you can't even get angry at the universal destruction of the souls of children, which results in all the great evils that uh, flourish in the world, then uh, there is no such thing as as anger at all. And there's no such thing as getting angry. I mean, what could be worse than that? What could be worse than the universal assault upon children? Do you get angry at pedophilia? Well, pedophilia results from the humiliation and the desire to humiliate, and it's part of the cycle of violence. Uh, do you get angry at beating children? Well, that's part of the destruction of their souls and part of everything I was talking about in terms of humiliation. Do you get angry at, at verbal abuse? Well, that's all part of the same. Like, if you're not even going to get angry at something like pedophilia, then it's hard for me to understand how anger is ever a viable, a viable emotion. And maybe you believe that it's not. Maybe you believe that all anger uh, is destructive. So, one of two possibilities exists. One is that I'm totally wrong in my theory about humiliation and the mistreatment of children being the source of the world's evils. And so on, it's perfectly possible that I'm totally wrong about all of that. But if I'm not wrong, it's certainly right to get angry. It doesn't mean that you have to get angry, but if you feel angry, then you should, you should express it. And if I'm wrong, but I believe that I'm right, then it's still perfectly consistent for me to get angry. Like, I can't say, I'm never going to get angry because I might be wrong. Right? That's like saying, I, I still can't love my wife despite uh, four years of wedded bliss. I still can't love her because she might turn on me. Well, yeah, okay, sure, might turn on you. I can't love life because I might get sick. I can't ever advocate anything because there's the possibility of error. Well, that's nonsense. Of course, there's always the possibility of error. That's why we have logic and empiricism. But if my theory is incorrect, but I believe that my theory is correct, then anger would be the genuine and uh, authentic, though not necessarily required, it would be the genuine and authentic response to uh, this looking sort of this, this evil directly in the face, or as directly as I was able to while podcasting. So there would still be no reason to, be, uh, to feel that my anger was misplaced. If I do believe that this is the greatest source of the greatest evil, then getting angry at it is perfectly valid. On two levels. One, of course, this happened to me. And the second, of course, is that it continues, the effects of it continue to accrue to me in the form of governments and religious crazies and terrorists and so on. And the world is heading in the wrong direction, and I think it's okay to beat it back this uh, corruption with some anger. So, no matter what, if I do believe, as I openly stated, that I am staring into the maw of the greatest source of the greatest evil, then anger is a perfectly valid and healthy response. Now, if I'm incorrect about the abuse of children being responsible for the greatest source of the greatest evil, 
uh, then, uh, you know, somebody could propose an alternate theory, somebody could tell me where they feel that my logic is incorrect, somebody could do this, that, or the other. And I would be perfectly content and happy to, uh, to accept that. I feel that it's true, which doesn't make it true, but it means that uh, there is a concordance between my passions and my reason, which is usually, a pre- for me at least, it's a pretty good indication that I'm on the right track. Again, it proves nothing, but for me, uh, it supports uh, quite a bit. Like in the same way, if you're an experienced philosopher, you can take emotional cues, right? Like if you are an experienced mathematician and you grasp something new or you grasp a solution to a problem, you're going to probably be right. And because your emotions now, you've, you've solved enough problems that your emotions are going to be kind of keyed into that and they're not going to lead you totally astray. Like if you're a computer programmer and you feel uh, that you, ah, aha, I've got a solution. Yeah, maybe occasionally that won't be a solution, but most times it will be. Uh, not so much when you're starting out, but after you've trained for a while, and I've had a lot of training and experience in, uh, in philosophy, but that uh, still he could uh, argue against, or anybody can argue against this proposition, but they can't claim that based on the premise that I'm talking about, that my anger is, is wrong or irrational or inappropriate or, or anything like that. So the idea that somebody is going to be offended by me being angry about the greatest source of the greatest evil, the abuse of all children, I mean, imagine if, if, uh, if your child is attacked by a pedophile, are you allowed to get angry at the person who attacked you? Uh, sorry, who attacked your child? Well, of course you are. I think it would be inhuman and fairly irrational to ask that that not occur. And if a father is allowed to get angry at a man who attacks and rapes his child, then if you're looking at the proximate ethical or philosophical cause of such great evils then I think it's okay to get angry. I mean, to me it would be, I mean, you're looking at something even bigger than an individual attack upon your own child, which is an assault, an endless, eternal, historical, and perpetual assault on the minds and souls of all children throughout the world. So, anyway. Now, the third thing that this gentleman said, which I found quite instructive, was he said, I used to be that angry, and I realized how destructive it was, and so I don't do that anymore. And I don't treat anyone that way anymore. And although I have been tempted at times to get into the the lane which you're allowed to get into, if you have um, a a second passenger, like a passenger in your car, this is the kind of childishness that we're required to follow uh, in the fabulous state of society, that we're allowed to use this lane, but only if we're carpooling. If I had somebody in the passenger side who I was yelling at directly, then, of course, this would be uh, abusive. I think. I mean, if I was yelling at someone in those terms while having them trapped in my car going 120 kilometers an hour, sorry, uh, officer, 100 uh, kilometers an hour, then, uh, yeah, I could understand that. But there was nobody else in the car. So when he said it's wrong to treat people like that, well, of course, that's, that's perfectly true, I think. I mean, again, maybe you're allowed to yell at somebody who's raped your kid, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I would say that yelling at somebody like that would be pretty abusive. Having been yelled at like that uh, in my life before, 
uh, for imagined transgressions or uh, rational disobediences, then I can certainly attest to that fact that it is uh, something that is uh, abusive, for sure. So, what's interesting, of course, is that this would lead me to suspect that what is occurring is this. And this is a good way to understand how projection may... I can't psychologize this guy from a distance. This is just a possibility. But how projection may come up for your li- in your life when you start to become more assertive and, uh, and deal uh, with violations of your uh, personhood with anger. And the way that it may uh, come up for you is that people will uh, be offended by your anger and it may be occurring in the way that it may be occurring for this guy. So uh, we'll call him Bob though his name is, in fact, Rachel. When I'm yelling, what happens is it triggers Bob's memory of being yelled at, right? Because Bob has a bad temper, and Bob has a bad temper because he was humiliated and abused in his past. And so when he... I don't know if he watched the video, or I think he listened to the podcast. So when he hears me yelling, it reaches deep into his nervous system and awakens a fight-or-flight response to him, uh, within him, which he then mistakenly identifies the harm that results, the tension, the fear, the upset, the resulting anger that he feels, the fight-or-flight mechanism that occurs within children when they're yelled at, abused, abused. Uh, my, uh, my raised voice triggers that within him, and instead of saying, my God, I mean, how scarred am I by these assholes who raised me that I can't listen to somebody yell about universal child abuse without feeling scared or angry or upset or fight or flight in some manner? Right when somebody uh, when somebody uh, has beaten you around the face repeatedly when you're a child, and somebody who you love and trust, a lover, say, then reaches for your face and you flinch. I don't think that it's rational, though it is certainly understandable. I don't think that it's rational to say to that person, "You scared me. It's highly offensive to do this to me with your hands." Right? What you can say, I think, reasonably is, my God, how badly was I beaten by these assholes who beat me so that a person who is reaching for me with love and affection frightens me. How unjustly was I abused so that all expressions of anger, even just expressions of anger, strike me as offensive and abusive. How scarred was I by bad and evil-tempered people to the point where I view all anger, even even anger against abusers, to be offensive and destructive. Right? Obviously, I've done nothing to Bob. I've never met Bob. I've exchanged a few emails with him. I've done nothing to Bob. But Bob finds that me getting angry at abusive people... Uh, scares uh, and humiliates 
uh, uh, provokes feelings of fear, humiliation, and anger within him, and then he is offended by that. He is offended by me being angry at abusers, but of course, the only reason that he's unable to process healthy anger is because he was abused. Do you see the sort of the catch-22 here? Abusers who use destructive rage to humiliate children prevent, many times, prevent those children from feeling anger themselves, which leads them to be defenseless in the face of uh, future and further exploitation or abuse. And so, when you begin to be more assertive, you will end up provoking these kinds of defenses and projections in other people, and they will attempt to convince you that if you are angry, you are abusive. And they'll do so in a passive-aggressive manner, like the intimation that you, Steph, are unhealthy and full of rage, and, and it's, it's sick, and it's abusive, and I'm offended, and I'm shocked, and blah, 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 blah. And what he's basically saying is, you frightened me. And I understand that. I totally, totally sympathize with that. And I'm sorry that you were frightened. But I would say that you will probably gain far more self-knowledge and perhaps even access to your own healthy anger if you look at how you were conditioned to be frightened by anger rather than to evaluate it just as something that someone is feeling. All that's happening is I'm feeling angry. I'm obviously no conceivable personal threat to anybody. So I'm a very careful driver. I've been doing this for, uh, I don't know, 10 months. I never even... And you can, you can listen to or review the video now if you want. I have never even remotely become dangerous while I'm driving. In fact, I would say that I'm a better driver when I'm podcasting because I don't space out. Uh, I am... Uh, very aware of my surroundings and my brain is working much harder than if I were listening to some dumbass radio show or listening to an audiobook or just staring uh, kind of blankly into nowhere. That, to me, would be a more dangerous state of mind than being mentally alert and working feverishly like 12 hamsters on 50 wheels to try and keep a podcast show going with consistent, <laughs> semi-consistent uh, arguments in uh, a, uh, an unknown amount of time. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, I'm sorry that you were frightened, but I think rather than being offended at me, if, if offense is to be taken, I think that it may be more justly, um, it is more just to be offended at those who abuse children than somebody who's getting angry at those who abuse children. That's just a possibility, and you might want to spend, uh, look into your uh, being offended, and first of all, ask yourself, uh, I'm guessing, this is sort of my guess, that mostly in the destruction of childhood anger, healthy childhood anger, uh, parents work this very tight tag-team approach, right? So the father will be physically abusive uh, or verbally abusive in a kind of top-down, hierarchical, hegemonic fashion, and the child will then feel anger uh, in response, right? And it sort of makes sense. And the, uh, the, the child will not so much express anger... Well, well, obviously, originally, will express anger towards the father, but the father will simply uh, threaten and bow-breach this child one-tenth his sides into atomically vaporized submission. 
But then the child, of course, the anger will out. The child will then express anger about the incident towards the mother. And the tag team way that this works, I'm pretty sure it's male-female. I guess it could be reversed, but this is sort of my understanding of it. The tag team approaches, the father provokes anger, the child expresses anger back to the father, the father crushes and squelches the child's sense of self, and then the child, in desperation uh, and trying to find a way to not experience the abuse directly and not realize that he's changed, changed to these psychos for the next 15 years, enslaved and helpless and dependent and can't get away, the child then turns to the mother and says, I'm really angry about X, Y, or Z. And then the mother responds with horror, uh, with shock and horror and offense that the child is angry. And this is uh, the tag team approach. And it's the masculine-feminine way of crushing uh, a healthy, responsive anger in a child in a situation of abuse, i.e. in a situation of childhood. Uh, the father is overtly aggressive and the mother is passive-aggressive and is horrified, horrified, I tell you, that the child could ever conceivably be angry. I saw, and I've been meaning to sort of mention this, I saw two films uh, a little while back. One I think is called Talk to Me, and it's a French film about a girl who's overweight and who has self-image problems and so on. And it's not a bad film. It's worth renting, I would say, if you can get a hold of it. It's uh, subtitled, so don't watch it on your iPod. But the, pers- the, the, the way that I think is important... And the reason that it's important to watch this film is that the child has legitimate complaints about her father. He's selfish and not abusive overtly, but he's passive-aggressive and and this sort of stuff. And the child has legitimate complaints about her father. The daughter does. And I think that it's perfectly fascinating to watch everybody in the film is constantly denying everybody else's authentic experience. This is absolutely worth uh, watching from that standpoint. It's absolutely continual, and I don't think it's an intention on the part of the writer, but it's well worth watching just to track that. I mean, the acting is very good, and the characters aren't bad, and it's kind of like a a Woody Allen with an accent aigu. And it's well worth watching, though, just to see how common it is whenever anybody expresses an honest opinion or is actually right about something, how much other people reject, poo-poo, minimize, dismiss, uh, and reject reject their uh, their opinion. This is very common. The other film is a deeper meta film. It's a third in a series, and it's called Water. And it's definitely worth renting. Again, I, I mean, if you're in Hicksville, uh, Illinois, you're not likely to be able to get a hold of it, but if you do uh, see the film Water, it is a little long, and it's very unusual. It is the story, and this I'm not giving anything away, this happens in the first five minutes of the film. It's a story about a woman in India, a little girl who's about seven or eight years old in India, and she is married, as many women in India uh, were and are, she's married off to a guy, basically because they need, uh, I guess the guys need... Um, cooks and cleaners and so on, and, and so she's married after this guy, and this guy dies right after they're, uh, they are married. And 
you can't get divorced and you can't remarry in this faith. I, I can't remember if it's Hindu or, or whatever. And so the, the daughter is packed away into a monastery where she is expected to live out the remainder of her lives, basically begging for her daily bread, because she's a widow. Right? So she was married off at the age of eight. Her husband died. She's never allowed to remarry. She can't divorce. And there's a lot in the movie that's nonsensical. The relationship with the young intellectual to his mother is completely make-believe. But it's a very powerful film. And it speaks quite a lot about social convention. And it speaks quite a lot about another terrifying problem, particularly in Indian society, which is also discussed in the movie... Um, Bollywood, Hollywood, I believe it is. No, uh, Monsoon Wedding, Monsoon Wedding, uh, which again, Monsoon Wedding, well worth watching. But if you get a chance to watch either of these two films, I think it's it's very, very important. But what happens in, in this sort of tag team approach to manipulating and destroying and undermining a child's rage, you know, the father provokes anger and the mother dismisses it and, and is appalled and horrified and shocked and rejected and rejects the child based on on the anger, right? So the child then realizes, says, oh, uh, then anger is not abusive when my dad does it, but anger is abusive when I do it. I mean, that's, that's the message that, that is very much reinforced within families, and of course it is very much reinforced with the government, right? The government can express anger or rage in this case, where they can go and uh, throw people in jail, and they can pass whatever laws they want, and they can invade countries, and they can, you know, ban substances, and, and then throw people in jail. So the government is allowed to express rage, but uh, you, uh, as a uh, citizen, are never allowed to be aggressive against the government, right? I mean, that's, that's appalling. That's absolutely appalling. And this is a very common kind of uh, situation in, in society, wherein, uh, as I said, in the podcast on humiliation, and I won't yell again here, because I think I made my, made, made my, I made my point, but the... Um, uh, the reality is that uh, the, the heavy provokes, uh, in this case, right, that the government is the father and the media is the mother, right? So in this case, like, uh, Hugo Chavez is, um, uh, is, in, is doing some, some conference in the North Americas or something. And today, February 21st, 2006, today uh, Hugo Chavez uh, talked about President Bush and called him a thug because President Bush and the CIA and so on, he says, are plotting his overthrow, are funding uh, rebels and so on. And this uh, um, uh, President Bush doesn't deign to respond, right? But the media run in uh, as a shocked and appalled maternal figure. And what do they say? Well, there's a couple of quotes. Uh, um, uh, John Bolton, I think his name is, this pansy-assed U.S. ambassador uh, to the U.N., uh, he said, you know, well, we don't condone this this comic book view of foreign relations, right? This comic book view of foreign relations. This idea that, you know, the, uh, the president who authorized the invasion and, uh, deposi- and, and toppling of a foreign government in Iraq and, and in Afghanistan could never imagine trying to topple a foreign government. I mean, that's, that's complete comic book. It, 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 you could never imagine him trying to uh, topple Hugo Chavez. It's, it's unthinkable. Uh, so, of course, this is just, you know, oh, it's silly, it's shocking, it's appalling. And uh, somebody else said that, uh, uh, that, that Hugo Chavez, for calling George Bush a, bru- a, a thug, is, is himself a brute. You're a brute! It's like some Scarlet O'Hara 
a fainting 19th century God get me the vapors kind of situation. But it's very, very common. Right? The, the, uh, the government uh, smashes people's lives, throws them in jail, uh, gets them raped, uh, invades, bombs, destroys, and then... But you know what real aggression is? It's not killing a hundred-odd uh, thousand Iraqis. It's not murdering those. It's not causing the deaths of half a million Iraqi children. That's not brutish behavior. You know what is really brutish behavior? Is calling somebody a thug who authorizes those things. Right? <laughs> I mean, you see the rather insane uh, way that this uh, works within the realm of any kind of ethics. It's not murderous to put two million citizens in jail, and it's not murderous to invade other countries, and it's not murderous to tax people within an inch of their uh, living standard. And it's not, uh, it's not uh, um, uh, brutish to run up a staggering national debt and risk financial collapse and destroy the savings of the middle class and, uh, you know, and, and to mentally torture children in schools. That's not thuggish. What is thuggish is to, what is brutish is to call someone a thug. To use the word thug, that, that is brutish, right? But you see, that is something that is uh, part of parcel of sort of what it is that I'm talking about here. That you have the people who smash you and then the people who are horrified when you try to fight back. And this is the male-female model. Uh, so this is sort of my guess as to what this guy's childhood was like, that his father smashed him down, and his mother was appalled, right? So the complex interaction that's occurring when he sends me this email is that I suddenly become his father, he becomes himself, and he's got, and then he also becomes his mother to try and control his own shocked and appalled nature and, and so on. So, uh, sorry, to try and control his own, uh, his own anger. So this is all very complex, and this is the kind of stuff that you deal with when you become assertive uh, and you're right, when you sort of become passionate and you're right, then uh, you awaken all sorts of nonsense from people's past. It's not nonsense that it happened to them, but it's nonsense that they'll project it onto you. And I just sort of wanted to to point that out so that uh, you at least could sort of understand that this is a risk that you take when you enter the, you know, semi-public arena of of talking in this kind of medium, that when you are uh, assertive, then people will try uh, to, uh, rather than face their own histories in an honest and open manner, which I'm not saying that this guy consciously did, right? Everything that he did, he genuinely experienced, and I have great sympathy for that. But uh, his false self is attempting to redirect his shocked and appalled and angry and frightened side to me, right? Rather than to his own history. And, of course, the true self put the nugget in about his own past problems with anger, which tells me everything I need to know about his family, his true self put that nugget in so that I wouldn't take the false self stuff very seriously and might actually be able to do something to help the true self slough off this false self that wants to misdirect his legitimate anger. So that's issue number one, and that only took us uh, 38 minutes. <laughs> I should know. Uh, so uh, the next two will be quicker, and we have a little bit of time for them because uh, there was a little bit of slowdown, even on the private roads. So I'm sure we can trace that back to the public roads somehow. But the other issue that's going on is that on this libertarian um, posting that I uh, occasionally participate in and read to some degree, although 200 emails a day, I don't really get around to all of them, there's been quite a debate going on about the validity of evolution. And what's going on there is that there are a number of people who are criticizing evolution as being 
uh, incomplete, that you can't show interspecies evolution, and uh, there's a whole bunch of things. You don't have to have me explain it to you, and I scarcely would put myself forward as even a remote kind of layman expert in this area. But this question of the validity of evolution uh, is, is, of course, directly related to people who are religious. It's absolutely, totally, and directly related to people who are religious. And what religious people want to do is they want to attack evolution because if they can create doubts about evolution, they feel that this will somehow create room for God, right? So if evolution is perfectly true, then they feel that this might threaten the validity of the existence of God, whereas if they can throw doubts upon evolutionary evolutionary theory, that that leaves room for God. Well, I get to tell you, my friends, that is so not true, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to start. The two theories are completely independent of each other. The theories that posit the existence of God and the theories that posit the validity of evolution as, um, as a methodology by which life evolves and, uh, and disseminates, completely and totally irrelevant. It's like saying that, uh, some, uh, that the theory of uh, that, uh, relativity, uh, the theory of relativity, uh, if that's proven false, then uh, inevitably uh, evolution is thrown into disrepute. And of course, it's complete nonsense. If you put a, for- a theory forward that says 2 plus 2 is 4, and I put a theory forward that 2 plus 2 is 5, the disproof of my theory in no way, shape, or form affects your theory in the same way that your theory doesn't affect my theory, the disproof or disproof of it, unless my theory directly rests on yours. And the existence of God has absolutely nothing to do with evolution, or not. It's just another one of these nonsensical things that people put together to try and rescue the great sky ghost of abuse uh, from his rat hole in the sky. And what I sort of find interesting is that religious people will argue about evolution and say, well, there's incomplete data and there's no actual proof and you can't see it in motion. And uh, people, people argue for it with a kind of dogmatic fervor. <laughs> I find that one particularly funny when you think about religion. <laughs> but they will uh, talk about this kind of stuff and basically say that, uh, well, I, oh Christian or oh religious person, I have a pretty high standard for proof, you see. And, and so I don't find that the theory, the scientific theory of evolution, matches my extraordinarily high standards of proof because there are gaps in knowledge, there are gaps in, in, uh, in process, and so on. Uh, although this is a, a theory that has a good degree of proof uh, empirically and it is logically consistent, I find that the gaps in the proof are such that I choose to reject this theory because I have such lofty and high standards for determining truth from falsehood. And evolution doesn't quite match that standard. My standard is 100% and evolution is only 80% or 90%. And so I'm going to leave the question of evolution open to doubt. I'm sure that my laughing will offend somebody now, just as my anger or any other possible emotion that I might show will surely offend somebody. (laughs) But to me, for a religious person to say, 
I'm going to reject this scientific theory because it doesn't meet my high standards of truth. <laughs> oh my god, it's hilarious. Oh really, you have to sort of see this from a rational perspective just to get how funny that is. <laughs> I mean, it's like Mickey Rooney not wanting to go out with Heidi Klum because he thinks she's too short. (laughs) And young. Oh, my God. I mean, for a religious person or a person who believes in a nonsensical idea like gods and goblins and Keebler elves and devils and leprechauns that come back to life and walk on water, (laughs) for somebody who's religious to say that, uh, that evolution doesn't quite meet their extraordinarily high and rigorous standards of truth. Ah! <laughs> I mean, they can't really be serious in that, right? Uh, oh my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, God. You know, I think I really am going quite mad. <laughs> Oh my god, that's good. I just find that so rich for a religious person to criticize a scientific theory for lacking evidence (laughs) that I'm going to go to church and eat a wafer that I think is the flesh of a god. (laughs) Oh my god, oh my god. I'm going to criticize evolution because there's little bits of proof that are missing. <laughs> but this wine is the god, is the blood of a man who died 2,000 years ago, oh, rose from the dead, and then ascended to heaven. <laughs> oh my god. Oh man, I really got to tell you, I think that religious people should sort of steer clear of criticizing scientific theories for. Ah, for incompleteness and inconsistency. Oh, man, that is too funny. And they're very earnest. God bless them, so to speak. I mean, they're very earnest about this. You know, well, there's there's lots of things that uh, evolution can't uh, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, and there's stuff that's missing. And we don't, you know... <laughs> Because, you know, if you're really concerned about uh, logical consistency uh, and, uh, and evidence and proof uh, such that you're willing to reject a scientific theory like evolution, uh, you absolutely want to believe uh, in people who turn water into wine and can multiply loaves of fishes and cure lepers and come back from the dead. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, it's like status talking about virtue. Oh, it's like soldiers talking about honor, religious people talking about, oh, God, intellectual integrity and the need for proof and rationality. Oh, man, I gotta tell you. Oh, it's madness. It really is. Of course, I pointed this out, uh, not with quite as many uh, uh, laugh laugh lines, but uh, I did point this out. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I did not end up getting much response yet, though I may get some in the future. But, oh, okay, I'm going to enjoy the rest of this podcast on my own because there's not much point you listening to me laugh, but I really do find this quite funny. Okay, we'll talk soon. (laughs)